Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Welcome to today's show. Do you ever wonder if it's really possible to be aware of the findings of modern science and still believe in the Bible? Sometimes that seems like that might be uh, just a little bit silly and childish. But the fact is, the more you dig into what science really knows, and the more careful you are with what Scripture actually says, the less problems there are. The truth is, to try to understand what modern science knows, and exclude any notion of a creator, is to hammer your head against some very difficult problems. Just as a follow-up to the last show, the physical laws of thermodynamics are as solidly established as any laws in science at all, and they actually, when you think about it, they preclude any possibility that this universe that we live in would exist if materialism were correct. Now remember, materialism is the idea that all that exists is matter and energy, the common atheist worldview and the worldview that is dominating science in academia today. Well, let's think about it. First, once you have any matter and energy, anything at all exists, it will tend toward disorganization and uselessness of the available energy. It will move toward a heat death. This will occur in a finite amount of time. This is the second law of thermodynamics. And the conclusion is very simple. It means this physical universe cannot be eternal under under today's physical laws. Secondly, since the universe is not eternal, it must have had a beginning. That's fairly obvious. Third, let's think about a beginning. The first law of thermodynamics is that you can neither create nor destroy energy. So you cannot create it. The laws of physics simply preclude any possibility that energy pops into existence from nothing. Now, to try to get around these problems means you must have an exception to the currently operating laws of nature. In other words, a miracle. All thinking materialists actually have a faith-based belief in miracles. Furthermore, Their belief system has no cause for the miracles. They just come from nowhere. Now think about where the miracle is required. It's necessary in order to explain the very existence of the universe around us, that anything exists. And then secondly, another miracle is required to have living creatures within this physical universe. The origin of physical matter and energy requires a miracle. The origin of life also requires a miracle. Some of the details that defy purely physical origin of life were discussed in our September 4th broadcast, and that can be listened to on our website at creationmythamiracle.com. So materialists must believe in the miraculous origin of the universe and of life, as both are precluded by the physical laws that are operating today. Now, all Bible-believing Christians also have a faith-based belief in miracles. However, their belief system does have a sufficient cause for the miracles. 
Thus, Christianity is actually more rational than materialism. Let's move on and discuss a claim that is commonly made by atheist scientists, and I suspect many of you have heard this yourselves. The claim is that if you allow any supernatural at all, it completely destroys any ability to do any science whatsoever. We would be completely impossible to investigate the world around us if we ever allow the supernatural or divine foot in the door, as they like to say. Let me share with you a discussion of this issue from an article by Jonathan Sarfati at creation.com called Who's Really Pushing Bad Science? Rebuttal to Lawrence S. Lerner. Now, this scare tactic is used to promote methodological naturalism, and here's how the reasoning goes. It is simply not possible to solve a scientific question if one is willing to invoke a supernatural answer, because supernatural answers foreclose further scientific inquiry. As we've already noted, a person who accounts for the motion of the planets by asserting that angels propel them is simply not going to be able to account for Kepler's laws of planetary motion in any kind of fruitful way. Well, this fails to note the distinction between normal operational science and origins or historical science. Normal operational science deals only with repeatable, observable processes in the present, while origin science helps us to make educated guesses about origins in the past. Operational laboratory science has given us technology, and this is the main reason people believe in science. Historical science is completely different and actually driven by the philosophical perspective used to interpret non-repeatable events. Recall Scott Todd's statement that, Even if all data point to an intelligent designer, such an hypothesis is excluded from science because it is not naturalistic. It's definitely not a case of let the data leads wherever it goes type of investigation. Now back to Sarfati's article. Operational science has indeed been very successful in understanding the world and has led to many improvements in the quality of life, for example, putting men on the moon and curing diseases. Because creation finished at the end of day six, biblical creationists would try to find natural laws for every aspect of operational science and would not invoke a miracle to explain any repeating event in nature in the present. So a creationist would not try to insert the miraculous where it is not required. This can be shown in a letter creationist scientist Jonathan Sarfati wrote to an inquirer who believed that atoms had to be held together by miraculous means. Sarfati wrote, Natural laws also help us to make predictions about future events. In the case of the atom, the explanation of the electrons staying in their orbitals is the positive electrical charge and large mass of the nucleus. This enables us to make predictions about how strongly a particular electron is held by a particular atom, for example, making the science of chemistry possible. While this is certainly an example of Colossians 1.17, simply saying God upholds the electron doesn't help us make predictions. Sarfati also noted that in his days as a university teaching assistant, he marked an examination answer wrong because it said, God made it so, 
for a question about the frequency of infrared spectral lines instead of discussing atomic masses and force constants. So it's a false claim that creationists are in any way hindered in real operational science research, either in theory or in practice. In contrast, evolution is a speculation about the unobserved and unrepeatable past. Thus it comes under origins science. Rather than observation, origin science uses the principles of causality. For example, everything that has a beginning has a cause. And analogy, for example, we observe that intelligence is needed to generate complex coded information in the present, so we can reasonably assume the same for the past. And because there was no material intelligent designer for life, it is legitimate to invoke a non-material designer for life. Creationists invoke the miraculous only for origin science, and as shown, this does not mean they will invoke it for operational science. The difference between operational and origin science is important for seeing through silly assertions such as the following, quote, Evolution is as thoroughly established as the picture of the solar system due to Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, and Newton, end quote. However, we can observe the motion of the planets. But no one has ever observed an information-increasing change of one type of organism to another. To further explain, the laws that govern the operation of a computer are not those that made the computer in the first place. The argument against creation science as well as intelligent design is like saying that if we concede that a computer had an intelligent designer, then we might not analyze a computer's workings in terms of natural laws of electron motion through semiconductors and might think there are little intelligent beings pushing electrons around instead. Similarly, believing that the genetic code was originally designed does not preclude us from believing that it works entirely by the laws of chemistry involving DNA, RNA, proteins, etc. Conversely, the fact that the coding machinery works according to reproducible laws of chemistry does not prove that the laws of chemistry were sufficient to build a system from a primordial soup. For more information about the difficulties of the origin of life from non-life, look up the question and answer origin of life at creation.com. And in addition, we discuss some of the very specific issues related to abiogenesis on this broadcast on September 4th, and you could listen to that on our website. And now for today's science discovery. The headline is, Found, the first mechanical gear in a living creature. UK scientists find the first biological gears on a jumping insect half the size of a fire ant. With two diminutive legs locked in a leap-ready position, the tiny jumper bends its body taunt like an archer drawing a bow. At the top of its legs, a minuscule pair of gears engage, their strange, shark-fin teeth interlocking cleanly like a zipper. And then faster than you can blink, think, or see with the naked eye, the entire thing is gone. In two milliseconds, it is bulleted skyward, accelerating at nearly 400 Gs, a rate more than 20 times what a human body can withstand. At top speed, the jumper breaks 8 miles per hour, which is quite a feat considering its body is less than one-tenth of an inch long. 
The miniature marvel is an adolescent Isis, a type of plant hopper insect and one of the fastest accelerators in the animal kingdom. As a duo of researchers in the UK reported today in the Journal of Science, the Isis, let me try to pronounce it that way, also the first living creature ever discovered to sport a functioning gear, quote, jumping is one of the most rapid and powerful things an animal can do, end quote, says Malcolm Burroughs, a zoologist at the University of Cambridge and the lead author of the paper. And that leads to all sorts of crazy specializations. The researchers believe that the Isis, which lives chiefly on European climbing vine, evolved its acrobatic prowess because it needs to flee dangerous situations. Although they're not exactly sure if the rapid jump evolved to escape hungry birds, parasitizing wasps, or the careless mouths of large grazing animals, quote, there's been enormous evolutionary pressure to become faster and faster and jump further and further away, Burroughs says. But gaining this high acceleration has put incredible demands on the reaction time of the insect's body parts, and that's where the gears, which, quote, you can imagine being at the top of the thigh bone in a human, Burrow says, come in. Now, the article is accompanied by a scanning electron micrograph image of the gears, which shows absolutely precisely engaging, perfectly formed gears, I would love to see if we could make anything remotely this small with our advanced technology. I, uh, I rather doubt it, but I would like to know. Back to the article. As the legs unfurl to power the jump, both have to move at exactly the same time. If they didn't, the animal would start to spiral out of control. Larger animals, whether kangaroos or NBA players, rely on their nervous system to keep the legs in sync when pushing off to jump using a constant loop of adjustment and feedback. But for the Isis, their legs outpace their nervous system. By the time an insect has sent a signal from its legs to its brain and back again, roughly five or six milliseconds, the launch has long since happened. Instead, the gears which engage before the jump let the Isis lock its legs together, synchronizing their movements to a precision of one three hundred thousandth of a second. Let me stop with the article for a moment. And I want you to notice the distinction between the speculation about evolutionary pressure and how might this have evolved and the laboratory or operational science of actually analyzing these gears in the present. Consider the difference of that as we continue. The gears themselves are an oddity. With gear teeth shaped like cresting waves, they look nothing like what you'd find in your car or a fancy watch. The style that you're most likely familiar with is called an involute gear and was designed by the Swift mathematician Leonard Euler in the 18th century. There could be two reasons for this. Though a mathematical oddity, there is a limitless number of ways to design intermeshing gears. So, either nature evolved one solution at random, or, as Gregory Sutton, co-author of the paper and insect researcher at the University of Bristol, suspects, the shape of the Isis's gear is particularly apt for the job it does. It's built for, quote, high precision and speed in one direction. It's a prototype for a new type of gear, end quote. Another odd thing about this discovery is that although there are many jumping insects like the Isis, including ones that are even faster and better jumpers, 
The Isis is apparently the only one with natural gears. Most other bugs synchronize the quick jolt of their leaping legs through friction using bumpy or grippy surfaces to press the top of their legs together, says Duke University biomechanics expert Steve Ogle, who was not involved in this study. Like gears, this ensures the legs move at the same rate, but without requiring a complicated interlocking mechanism. There are a lot of friction pads around, and they accomplish pretty much the same thing, he says. So I wonder what extra capacity these gears confer. They're rather specialized, and there are lots of other jumpers that don't have them, so there must be some kind of advantage. Note the embedded assumption of Darwinian-type evolution, that the gears must have evolved as a competitive advantage. There's no evidence of that. That's pure hypothesis. So note origin science, not operation science. Let's continue. Even stranger is that the Isis doesn't keep these gears throughout its life cycle. As the adolescent insect grows, it molts more than a half dozen times, upgrading its exoskeleton, gears included, for larger and larger versions. But after its final molt into adulthood, poof, the gears are gone. The adult sinks its legs by friction like all other plant hoppers. I'm gobsmacked, says Sutton. We have a hypothesis as to why this is the case, but we can't tell you for sure. Their idea. If one of the gear teeth were to slip and break in an adult, the, re the researchers observe this in adolescent bugs, its jumping ability would be hindered forever. With no more molts, it would have no chance to grow more gears. And with every bound, quote, the whole system might slip, accelerating damage to the rest of the gear teeth, end quote, Sutton says. Just like if your car has a gear train missing a tooth. Every time you go to that missing tooth, the gear train jerks. That's the end of the article. I hope you notice the difference between the conjecture and the guesswork as to how these supposedly evolved and the actual science of the description of the nature of the gears, the acceleration that it's able to produce, and the other physical quantities that you can measure in a laboratory, and the other observations of other creatures that you can repeat in a laboratory. Let me now play evolutionist and apply some logic here. Let me play the game that often goes on. I will disagree with the evolutionary story of these scientists, they said there must be some advantage to these gears. They don't know what it is, but there must be some advantage to these gears so that they evolved. I would say, no, the gears actually are the old version that happens to be left over in these creatures. And the more evolved creatures don't have these gears. They simply use the friction pads, much like the Isis uses as an adult. In fact, didn't they admit that most insects just use friction pads. This is the only one they know of that uses gears. They identified that gears are fragile and can break. They even observed it happening. And they speculate that the fragileness is the reason they disappear in the adult version. I would say that because it's fragile and not a very good mechanism, it's clearly not advantageous and unnecessary because even these authors admitted other bugs that use friction pads jump faster and are better jumpers. So there is no advantage. They're just hypothesizing that and dreaming it up. 
So my evolution story is not that the gears evolved in this creature, but that gears are an old, inferior mechanism, and they have disappeared in the adult version of the Isis, and they have disappeared in all the other modern bugs that we can examine in the library. Now, my reasoning is absolutely as valid as theirs, and we can reach different conclusions. That's one of the fun parts about reading what evolutionists write. They always disagree with each other because, well, you're not going to get your paper published if you just say the same thing somebody else said. So I'll just tell you a different story, and I'll get my paper published. So we have gears identified in living creatures for the first time. Do you think that would cause an open discussion of the potential for their being design of these features in a living thing? Well, I know already today of an individual who served our military in a highly technical capacity that posted some information about this article, published in Science Magazine, by the way, and the result was that an evolutionist biologist unfriended the individual, doesn't even want to allow a discussion. It reminds me of a child sticking his fingers in his ears and going, yeah, 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 yeah when they don't want to hear what you're telling them. It's truly amazing that there simply is no discussion. But if this evolutionist biologist has the same worldview as some of the people that I've shared with you on this show, it's completely consistent. It is absolutely impossible that those gears are designed. So don't even show them to me. Let's not even consider the discussion. It doesn't matter if all the data points to an intelligent designer. It's not science. It isn't possible. Quit showing me this information, okay? You think maybe this might have something to do with why evolutionists fight so hard to keep intelligent design information out of our public schools? As you know, if you listen to the intro to this show, I'm an ex-atheist, and I recall how I thought at that time, and I've been observing this interplay between creationists and evolutionists in particular for the last 37 years very closely, and I continue to be amazed at how difficult it is to have a discussion with evolutionists about the actual details of what we're observing in science. Most often, the discussion quickly degenerates to statements like, all creationists are liars, there are no such things as actual creationist scientists, Uh, creationists are stupid, things of that nature. Well, that's what happens when somebody doesn't want to have a discussion. The other thing that occurs is many people will simply say, well, that's what consensus science believes. And so it must be true. You don't really think almost all scientists could be wrong at the same time, do you? I mean, just how silly is that? Well, that objection, that consensus science knows what's right, is so common, so prevalent, and so important to be understood that I included that on the very first broadcast of this show back on September 2nd. And it's also a blog on my website called Consensus Science. Let me remind you of just a couple of things that were said by Michael Crichton on this subject. Let's be clear, the work of science has nothing whatever to do with consensus. Consensus is the business of politics. Science, on the contrary, requires only one investigator who happens to be right, 
which means that he or she has results that are verifiable by reference to the real world. In science, consensus is irrelevant. What is relevant is reproducible results. The greatest scientists in history are great precisely because they broke with the consensus. There is no such thing as consensus science. If it's consensus, it isn't science. If it's science, it isn't consensus, period. Crichton further noted that the only time this consensus argument is used is when the science itself is too weak. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul wrote that there is evidence for the Creator in the creation around us, and furthermore, that those who ignore such evidence are without excuse. So I appeal to you to consider the evidence. Look at what science actually tells us. Open your minds, be skeptical of the consensus, and think for yourself. See creationmythormiracle.com for more info.